Welcome to the Grace Community Church Podcast. We are grace for everyone, community for everyone, church for everyone. We hope that as you listen to the message from this past Sunday, that your heart is encouraged and you find yourself being drawn to Jesus wherever you're tuning in from. We are so grateful that you've joined us and pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Hey friends, happy Thanksgiving. I love this time of year, you know, sweater weather. It's it's where it can still be in the 20s during the day, but you need a hoodie by the time the evening rolls around, uh, which is getting earlier and earlier by the day. But I love a good bonfire in the backyard with no bugs, uh, the turning of the leaves, the crisp air in the early morning. This, this time of season sparks a little bit of gratitude in my heart. I also had a couple of experiences this week that just reminded me of um, how precious life is and uh, I'm grateful for the people in my life and grateful for the the opportunity to be able to be together in even things like this. What what sparks gratitude in your heart this Thanksgiving weekend? As you as you think about this season, when you reflect upon your life, what sort of things uh, come up that you're really grateful for? What what gives you pause and causes you to think of, of the things that you could give thanks for, for the many blessings that we enjoy every day. I'm thankful for, for family and friends. I'm thankful for a church that seeks to love God and love neighbor with equal passion, to be grace for everyone. I'm, I'm grateful for health and strength. And, and even when things are challenging or painful, I'm thankful that there's, there's, there's a God who's indeed with us through every season. I'm grateful for the grace of God that's been given to us, that we've been brought from death to life and that Jesus is now at work in us, that Christ lives in us. I'm, I'm grateful for that this, this, Chris, or this Christmas, this Thanksgiving season. Paul reminds us of this incredible mystery in Galatians 2.20, a verse that would be worth committing to memory and allowing to just sink really deep into our very being. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. A couple of weeks ago, we we began a series working our way through the book of Galatians. And today we get into chapter 2, and we're going to read that passage again in a few moments. But we've been looking at this letter that Paul has written to the churches in Galatia. Churches that had been planted uh, by Paul and then turned over to other leaders who are now experiencing some teaching and some people who were coming in trying to lead them down a different path. And these teachers, history has dubbed them the Judaizers. They were people who were adding to the gospel by uh, telling people that in order to be saved, you need to also first follow the law of Moses. That you could follow the teaching of Paul, yes, but you also needed to make sure that you were following the traditions of Moses. And, And Paul um, is being accused of like shortchanging people by not giving them the full gospel. That the full gospel includes things like circumcision and, and adherence to the Old Testament law. And this wouldn't have been great news to the adult males in the church, I don't imagine. But Paul gets wind of this teaching and these teachers and he's writing this letter to send some correction. He's saying it's not Jesus plus Moses that equals salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's, it's only by the grace of God. It is only this work of Christ that saves us. So it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. The gospel that we have received from God, it's it's free from the law. It is grace alone. And in the first chapter, 
he begins to call out those teachers and he reiterates his credentials. He, last week we looked at the calling that God had placed on Paul's life and he'd had this dramatic turnaround and it became, you know, went from being one of the biggest per, uh, persecutors of the church to being one of its most prolific church planters. And so Paul continues to explain how he became an apostle and how that message of Christ made its way to the church in Galatia. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul writes, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and Meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we had in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul does a little name dropping here in case there's any doubt that he's been called. He last week mentioned Peter and James. Here he mentions Barnabas and Titus. They were well-known and respected teachers in the church, men who had been teaching the good news before Paul had been converted. And Paul goes to them and kind of lays out what he's been preaching to make sure that there's no need for correction or that he hasn't missed anything. He's, he says that he's been called to preach to the Gentiles and that circumcision wasn't part of his teaching. And Titus, who was a Gentile, an uncircumcised Greek, didn't feel compelled to become circumcised by spending all of this time with Paul. Even though he had been walking with Paul and listening to his teaching, there was nothing about what Paul was teaching that would say that Titus needed to be circumcised. But there were some who had snuck into the ranks and were trying to add that to the gospel. Paul says they were spying on the freedom that we were enjoying and they were trying to make us slaves again. Trying to make us come under the law again and forsake the freedom that grace had brought them. Trying to add to the gospel circumcision specifically. So a good chunk of Galatians focuses on the fact that circumcision was this major issue in the churches where the Gentiles had become members, including some of these churches that Paul had started. And for, for many of those people, it was a question of identity. It was, it was not only of knowing like who you were yourself, but also who else belonged in the group. Much of the, the history for the Jewish people had been about being people who followed the law, that they were people who had been set apart as as Yahweh's children. And, and one of the signs that they were his children was circumcision. And so part of being a part of the family, part of the, like, the ethnic tribe that they were a part of was being those who had been circumcised. And this didn't really come up as an issue in the really early days of the church because most, if not all, of the first Christians were Jews to start with. All the males had been circumcised anyway. But as soon as it broke out beyond the tribe of Israel. As soon as some non-Jewish people heard the good news about Jesus, as soon as they believed and got baptized, the question of like, well, what, what group identity markers do we have at this point? What, what shows that we're a part of this family? And this is almost always our human tendency, isn't it? To like, to be drawn to people who are like us and to, and to bring people together, but then to also create boundaries for those who are not like us, those who are in and those who are out. Like Jets fans are welcome, Leafs fans we tolerate, but everybody else is cause for suspicion. 
We do this with almost every area of our life. We do it with our politics, with our social classes. We do it with our theology. What are the rules for belonging? What makes us in and what keeps people out? And the early church seemed to, to find that God had dropped a bunch of the requirements that had previously existed. That the Gentiles were being invited into the family without having become Jewish first, without any previous connection to the God of Israel. And the problem here was about the Jewish law. The the Jews had been brought up to keep the law of Moses, to to hide this word in their hearts so that they might not sin against against God, to, to have this law written on their hearts so they'd be careful to obey it. They were waiting for a Jewish Messiah and they believed that he was, Jesus was that Jewish Messiah. So now that they had followed this Jewish Messiah, wouldn't the requirements to still be Jewish be present? And as new people started coming to the faith, wouldn't those people believing in a Jewish Messiah also need to believe in the Jewish law? This was the question that was coming up. And Paul's answer is a little bit yes and no. It's often difficult to tell who is precisely keeping the law of Moses. There there are things about the law of Moses that are still beneficial for us to like lean into in, in our day and age. Now, most of those things are also found in the teaching of Jesus, and Jesus tends to take it even farther when he says that, you know, in, if, you, if you think that you shouldn't murder, well, be careful about your anger because you may have committed murder in your heart because of your anger. But the, the, the challenge with figuring out who's in and who's out, who's actually really Christian, who's not, didn't have that identity marker of like regular Sabbath keeping or circumcision. Those things were maybe difficult to tell even in like in the time before Jesus because, you know, you didn't know for sure if your neighbor was always eating kosher food. You didn't exactly watch every minute to make sure people were keeping the Sabbath. There were long-running debates about what it meant precisely to keep the Sabbath, what food could and couldn't be eaten. There were, there were lots of different opinions from different schools of thought. But, but circumcision was one of those things where you knew where somebody stood. Like a male was either circumcised or he wasn't. It was a pretty clear-cut, pun intended, pretty clear-cut sign. You knew somebody was part of the family. You knew somebody was part of the tribe if they were circumcised. Now, I don't know how often they checked. I don't think it was like Costco where you had to show your card every time you went in. But like, what, what, was, the, what was the identity marker? It was law observance. It was circumcision. So that's why Paul is telling this story about going back to Jerusalem. You know, this was his second visit after his conversion. And he struggles with the question of Titus and circumcision because Titus had been coming with him, but Titus wasn't circumcised. It seems like there may have been those who were trying to pressure Titus to be circumcised, but Titus didn't. He didn't feel that pressure and he didn't feel it from Paul. And the language here in Galatians is a little bit cumbersome because it seems like Paul is perhaps defending against some accusations that others had claimed about him, that Paul maybe secretly wanted everyone to be circumcised, that that Paul, being a Pharisee um, who was so passionate about the law before his conversion, had some of that stuff still in the background of his teaching, that Paul was still, he really wanted people to be Jewish and then Christian, that maybe he hadn't made it clear to the Galatians because he was worried about offending them. Like, after all, when he took Timothy, uh, who was also a Greek, out on mission with him, he had Timothy circumcised. In Acts 16, we read, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish, but his father was a Greek. 
Now, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. So Paul wanted to take him on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what's the deal? Paul wants to take Timothy, so he has him circumcised, and he has him circumcised because of the Jews, because the Jews knew that his father was a Greek and knew that he was likely uncircumcised. The Galatians didn't need to be circumcised, but Timothy did. Like, what was, what was Paul's real message? You can understand why there may have been some who were making accusations or questioning whether or not Paul wanted everyone to be circumcised. Why? What was the deal with Timothy? I'm not entirely sure if, if this is uh, exactly what was going on, but I, I think that what might have been happening was similar to my earrings. Maybe not quite as drastic, but when I first started in ministry, I knew some people in my first congregation really struggled with the fact that I had a piercing. At that time, I had only one ear pierced, and so when I was a pastor there, I, I took out my earring for the entire time that I was there. I knew that there were some people that would, you know, wouldn't be able to hear the message on a Sunday morning if I was preaching because all they would be able to see would be the earring in my ear and be asking questions, why, why, why does he have a piercing? So out of respect out of not wanting to be a stumbling block, I took my earring out. Now later on, I got the ears pierced again and here we are with some tattoos and some piercing. But, but I wonder if that's what Paul and Timothy were doing in that moment, that he knew that there was gonna be a stumbling block. So Timothy ended up being circumcised to create a deeper affinity with those he was trying to reach. I don't know that Paul was demanding that in order to be faithful to Jesus, Timothy had to be circumcised. Remember, this stuff is floating around all of the churches at this time. They're trying to figure out what it means to be faithful to God with this new way that Jesus is making um, in them and also recognizing that he's opened the door beyond those of the Jewish faith. So Paul uses this example of Titus to say like, no, 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 like it, what, just because Timothy was circumcised doesn't mean that everybody um, needs to be circumcised. He, he's maybe trying to disprove some accusations that were, that were floating around that he was demanding that others had to be circumcised and that he had left that out for the Galatians. It, this is what seems to be happening anyway, that there were these troublemakers in Galatia they're doing their best to discredit Paul and maybe cast some doubt on his apostleship and the completeness of the gospel that he had preached to them. That maybe they were telling the Galatian Christians that Paul, you know, he did really want all non-Jewish Christians to become circumcised. That, you know, that he had left that bit of the message out. This is maybe what they were saying, right? That he hadn't told them everything because maybe he didn't have time or maybe he was too nervous. Maybe he was worried that it would offend them or cause them to reject the good news. So he thought, well, I'll save that for a little bit later. And Paul is trying to set the record straight here. He's saying like, no, 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 like you've got the complete gospel. The gospel that I've preached to you isn't something that was clever that I created and I didn't shortchange you by not telling you about circumcision. Circumcision is not part of the gospel. You shouldn't be compelled to be circumcised. Titus hasn't been as he's been with me and neither should you. Nobody should be compelled to be circumcised in order to be faithful to Jesus but it was a huge issue in the church. Timothy was circumcised before he headed out on a mission with Paul so that he wouldn't be a stumbling block. So the message that's been going around is likely very mixed. But there were some people that definitely had a direct agenda. They wanted to get people following the law as well as following Jesus. And this is where Paul gets fired up and he says, no, this is not the way. It's not Jesus plus the law. It's Jesus plus nothing. And Paul hints that nothing was added to the message way back in the beginning when he was 
surrounded by the other apostles. The opportunity to correct him or challenge him presented itself and nobody opposed his message. He went back to those leaders who were respected in Jerusalem and said, hey, here's what I'm teaching. What do you think? And nobody said, oh, you need to add circumcision into the teaching. You need to tell people to also follow the words of Moses. He goes on to mention a few other big hitters in the early church. He says, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism, but they added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, Peter, and John, those esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and, uh, and they to go to the circumcised. And they asked that we should continue to remember the poor. All they asked is that we should remember the poor, the very thing I have been eager to do so all along. James, Peter, and John recognized that Paul had been called to the Gentiles and that they were called to the Jews. And so all that they asked is that Paul and Barnabas, while they continued their mission to the Gentiles, would remember the poor, remember what the call of Jesus was, that there was nothing new added here. And so Peter recognized that he had been called to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. Now, a, a dispute arises between the two of them. It seems that even Peter had begun to listen to some of these false teachers and had started to distance himself once again from the Gentiles. Paul continues, he says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Bef For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, just because the works of the law, sorry, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners? Doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. For though the law, sorry, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So there's this, this dispute. Peter comes up to Antioch where Paul is a part of the church and P Peter refuses to sit with the Gentiles. Now it's 
it's kind of hard for us to imagine how serious this matter is. Like the, the matter of like sitting at the same table with somebody, it's, it goes so much bigger than the like lunch table at school where like the lonely kid is sitting by himself. The, 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 the common table, the fellowship table is where church gathered. That's the, that was the, the point of getting together was to eat and share communion together. This is where communion happened. It was a picture of acceptance and belonging. belonging. It's, it's what community looked like. When you talk about community for everyone in the early church, it was gathering around a table. Eating with people was one of the most powerful symbols of, of association, that you belonged. And so we would sit and eat with those that we love and accept. And that's what the early church looked like. And so the early church was mixed with people of every different uh, financial background and uh, relationship background. They were people who gathered around that table and they belonged when they would sit and eat together. And Peter was one of the first to accept the Gentiles. After the conversion of Cornelius and his household, it's, it was Peter who came back and said, like, look, this is, this is what's going on. The God is breaking out beyond our tribe and he has accepted the Gentiles and, and we need to be accepting of them as well. What God has called holy, we should also call holy. We should not call them unclean. But it now seems that Peter has fallen back into some of his old ways. It says that he was afraid of those of the circumcision group, that he was maybe leaning back towards some of the like, well, maybe maybe they do need to be circumcised or maybe they're different than us. Maybe they're not as good or maybe they're not as righteous or not as holy. And it's Paul that sets Peter straight and says, look, you you used to do this. Like you live like a Gentile now. You've, you've walked away from the law so much yourself. Why are you placing this burden on other people? Paul points out the hypocrisies. Like, you've preached that it's Jesus alone, and yet your actions at the table seem to think that you're better than, that people need to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And the language there of hypocrisy, of acting, is, is really significant. It comes from that picture of Greek theater where you're playing a part, not being true to who you actually are. And that's what Paul's saying here is like, you're wearing a mask. You are, you are trying to uh, be one thing to one people and another to others. And this is not fair to those who are Gentile who are coming to the faith. You're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. You're, you're play acting. You're trying to appease these people of the circumcision group, the Judaizers. And Paul sets the record straight. He says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So too, we have put faith our faith in Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is justified. We're only justified, all of us, Gentile and Jew, justified by faith in Jesus alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's not the law, it's not works, it's grace alone. That we're all in the same boat. We all fall short, we all need grace, but we all can receive it and be justified. Trying to be justified by following the law or being circumcised isn't going to get us there. Like I said in the beginning, verse 20 is one that be worth committing to memory. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the good news. That's all the proof of belonging that you need. It's not some outward symbol of circumcision. It's a crucified life. The life of Christ lived in me, living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We, we like the outside markers. We like to be able to, 
to say this person is in and this person is out. And we do it all through our lives. It's why we end up with friends who look and sound like us most naturally. That's, that's if unless we're intentional about meeting new people, about exposing ourselves to new things, we'll eat the same food every time we go to a restaurant. We, 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 we like to have those uh, predictable things and boundaries around us. But it doesn't work as soon as you come to a life of faith. The doors have been thrown wide open. Grace is truly for everyone. And the proof of belonging, the proof of you being a part of the family isn't circumcision, isn't following the law. It isn't, you know, Jesus plus Moses. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you want to know if somebody is saved, ask yourself, are they living for Jesus? Do you see the life of Jesus in them? It doesn't matter do they go to church, how much they go to church, how much they give. All of those outside markers matter far less than do you see the life of Jesus being lived in them? Do you see the love and grace and hope and peace and compassion? Do you see those things in their life? Do you hear them talk about the goodness of God? Can you see the grace of God in their lives? Because if we set aside and, and hope to attain righteousness in our own strength, we miss the good news. If we think that it's about, you know, going to church, if we think that it's about all of those other outward markers, we, we miss the good news. Paul goes as far as saying that Christ died for nothing if that's what we try to attempt. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is why Paul is so fired up about this teaching. By adding law to the gospel, these teachers have diminished the work of Jesus on the cross. They're saying that grace is all well and good, but we need to do this in order to be saved. It's, it's the grace of God that produces good fruit in our lives. It's not that we produce good fruit. It's, it's grace that comes first. We don't try and grow fruit in our own strength. It's, it's Jesus. It's his life. We died to our old way of life. We have been crucified with Christ and it's now his life that's lived through us. So if you're looking for outward markers, if somebody loves and follows Jesus, you should see some of the life of Jesus coming out of them. You should hear love. You should hear grace. You should hear peace and hope and joy and obedience. It's him alive in us. We died to our own way of like striving and keeping the law and trying to earn God's favor. We've been given a gift, the life of Christ, him alive in us. We've been justified because we've been crucified in Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Anytime we try to add something to the good news of Jesus, we actually subtract from it. We minimize it. We make it less than the amazing gift that's been offered to us. We've been offered life abundant here on earth and for eternity if we're willing to put our hope and trust in Jesus. If we're willing to make that transaction, that transition from life on my own to life in Christ. If we confess that he is Lord, we give our lives to his kingdom, then the outward markers become the fruit that grows in our lives. That's what the good news is. We accept his love. We allow it to mold and shape our lives so that we share that love with others. That it's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we are, we're so often tempted to draw our lines in the sand and put up our fences to figure out who's in and who's out. And we, we create these arbitrary identity markers that attempt to make people more like us rather than pointing people to you so that they become more like you. 
And we want to reflect the life of Jesus to those around us. We want, to, we want to live the cruciform life where it's no longer our rules or preferences. It's not our wills or desires. It's, it's not that that calls the shots. It's not our life, our, our lives lived for the law, but it's your spirit that leads us to bear good fruit. That we become more loving and gracious and kind and patient because we're becoming more obedient to the Father. Because you're living in us. The life of obedience that you live to the Father is being lived out in us. May it be said of us, would we be able to say the same thing that Paul did, that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would that be said of us? Would we be able to say that in the same way that Paul did, that it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me? And we ask these mercies in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray you have an amazing Thanksgiving weekend. Enjoy an extra day of rest this weekend. Would you experience the, the goodness and grace of God in increasing measure as you go from this space and may the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes, the love of God be reflected in your hands, the wisdom of God be reflected in your words, and the knowledge of God flow from your heart that all might see and seeing believe in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace to you.